position. I was the Labour MP for Nottingham South for 18 years. I stood down in 2010 because I thought the Parliament was losing the plot and becoming obsessed with small picture politics rather than big and I thought that maybe I just needed to get out and try to influence it from outside. And um, what's your, where do you come from on these kind of issues around energy and climate change and the role of top-down, bottom-up action on those issues? Well, I suppose the, the big achievement for me in the parliamentary sense was that I organised the sort of parliamentary ganging up that pushed the feed-in tariffs into the 2008 Energy Act. And that, for me, was a, a really profound change that meant that at a community level, people could start to get into the renewable energy game and to be drivers of the transformation game. Um, so, in a sense, Parliament needed to provide the open door and the transition movement needed to run like the clappers through it and I think that that was what looked to be a real possibility uh, post 2008 um, up until sometime in 2010 when George Osborne turned what had been um, an open-ended commitment to the financing of that transition on the same lines that, G that Germany had done, i.e. Uh, self-financing elements in the energy sector accounts. Uh, and what Osborne did was to turn that into a fixed budget within government accounts, and that seemed to allow a fundamental change in thinking in which all of the shift into renewable energy now have been constrained by the levy controlled framework and dominated by a government obsession not to do anything on any great scale and at any great rush. So we're at a really critical stage of energy transformation or not. Um, what I'm hoping is that the transformation movement can save government from uh, locking the UK into an, a mindset of the past, uh, but with huge financial millstones that would sink it in the future. Uh, you were one of very, very few, if not the only, member of parliament who explicitly questioned the economic growth model what what was it what's it like being inside westminster and uh, and questioning that is it is is it really is it still a taboo in those circles or off the record do a lot of people share that um it was no i think very few people grasped this uh and i was being given uh, messages about the unacceptability of this way of seeing things um, from a fairly early stage. Uh, um, I think Tony Blair told the parliamentary press 
lobby that if I was the last surviving member of the Parliamentary Labour Party, he wouldn't have me in his cabinet, um, which I took as something as an accolade. Um, and also to... Um, uh, there's a, a book called Fool's Britannia by um, Nick Cohen, in which uh, Nick says that he, he quotes someone from Down Street saying that if, if people listened to me, I could ruin everything. So I think that, that it was quite clear to me that all of the political parties were strapped to a mindset about growth, which was as self-deluding as it was going to be self-defeating for the planet, and it was only ever going to end in tears. That's a sad reflection on things. The difficulty is that it is locked into the mindset of the Treasury. And I had had several, um, I suppose, unhelpful encounters with the Treasury uh, during the time of trying to argue for a different approach to economics. The funny thing for me is that uh, more often than not, when I would go into into the Treasury, you'd find yourself besieged by young kids uh, running the sort of uh, what I think was naive economic theories that we used to laugh at when I was an economics undergraduate. And they were seen as pretty daft ideas at the time, but the passages of time has almost made them um, market orthodoxies. And they, they bore no relationship to finite limits of the planet or the notion that at some point an economics of repair would have to overtake an economics of exploitation. And I think only the, the trans, it's only the transformation movements that, that really seem to grasp this. You wrote in an article that you sent me, you said that um, obsessed with empowering the individual, Parliament has lost sight of the collective. How yes. does, how does is, is reforming Parliament possible? And if so, what would it look like? Um, well, I, I'm not... I, w I don't want to get drawn into the notion that you can reform Parliament just by changing the voting system. Because uh, I think you can get led into some fairly unproductive um, pathways about the technicalities of voting systems. What I like to try to remind people of is that if you look at the UK's energy systems. And you have to turn the clock back just over 200 years to where they first emerged at a municipal level. And from 1817 through to the 1880s, you had this fantastic movement of municipal gas, water, and electricity companies, all of which were formed by localities. And Parliament didn't catch up with this until about the 1850s. The, where we are now 
I think there is a similar revolution that is taking place. And technology is driving this. The possibilities of developing energy systems that are lighter, brighter, quicker, um, more nimble at self-balancing and self-regulating, all of these will deliver a quite different energy system within a decade. And old energy just struggles to grasp this. Unfortunately, they seem to have an absolute arm lock on the mindset of Parliament and just bang this drum that if you don't throw us more money, the lights will go out. So we have a politics of fear, it's the politics of, of the bogeyman. But step, if you step back from that, all of those who have any grasp of climate science and just the turbulence of what's going on understand that those big centralised energy systems aren't going to work and nor will individual energy solutions. It's really nice for me to live in a house where I export or I produce more electricity than I consume. But is that going to make a hapeth of difference in, to the shape of society in the decades ahead? No. It will only make a difference if that forms part of something larger and more interdependent. And so I think it, as eras go, we moved from one uh, that was caricatured as the nanny state uh, that went up until Thatcher's arrival at the end of the 70s into an era of obsessive short-sighted individualism that ran until pretty much where we are now. And the era that is emerging that is going to offer any sanctuary is going to be one where we discover real strength and, in and security through our interdependencies. In the UK, this is difficult for people to grasp because we don't think we have a starting point. We've forgotten the, the socialization of our original energy systems. What we have to do is just reach out beyond our own shores and see what's happening in Denmark, in Germany, in parts of the USA, where people are beginning to see that they, if they re-socialize today's grids, they can generate more of their own energy from clean, renewable sources. That they can generate today's and tomorrow's jobs in the process of doing that. Mm -hmm. They can reduce energy consumption by selling less energy need rather than more. Uh, and they can sell or construct for themselves uh, elaborate networks of balancing and storage that deliver that collective security. And all this is constructed around an economics that treads more lightly on the present and the future. I get that excited about this because 
it seems to me that it is in a qualitative, ethical sense, an economics of more rather than an economics of less. It's just that it's more fulfilling mm-hmm. rather than more consuming. And um, there might be people who are involved in um, transition or um, things like that who are so kind of moved by the scale of, of, of climate change and the urgency to do stuff that they might think, well, maybe I should, maybe I should run for Parliament and, and, and try and try and get in there. What's your sense of that balance between whether we should be investing our time and energy at the local scale or whether we should be running for Parliament? And how much impact can you actually have uh, at that scale? I'm not sure that I see that as an either-or choice. I usually say to people, um, don't write Parliament off because Parliament has an important role and it needs to be rescued by braver people coming in than we have there at the moment. Um, And so um, infiltrate every political party that you can and try to get yourselves selected as as candidates. Don't think that you can just, on a whim, um, put your name forward as a as a candidate, and the system as is will whisk you up and hail your arrival. It didn't. It doesn't work like that. So you have to be realistic about how the current voting system works, and and seek to try to engage with that constructively. So that is an invitation for brave people to, to become candidates of parties that are um, in with a serious shout of winning seats. The second thing is to say, however, that um, as, a, a, as part of a movement, what transition needs to recognise is that it has enormous strength at the moment because all of the parties are living in absolute fear that the public will turn around at some point before the next election and say out loud, there is nothing here to vote for. None of you, none of you offer a vision that is worth coming, you know, putting my, taking my slippers off, putting my shoes back on and going out to the, the polling stations. Mm. And that fear of being seen as standing for nothing has suddenly been hyped up by the arrival of UKIP on the right as challenging this notion that uh, on the conservative side of things said, basically, we just have to uh, compete with UKIP on an anti-immigration ticket to, to get ourselves in. Uh, and on the left, Labour saying, well, we can just, we can ignore all the votes to the left. We just have to be marginally better than the Conservatives. Well, that trajectory is going to take society headlong over the cliff because UKIP aren't a positive politics. They're just the absence of a serious politics. Um, what the movement has to do is challenge the mainstream parties to stand for a 
positive alternative, a visionary alternative to the narrow, introspective divisiveness that is UKIP. And that's a really, to begin by saying openly to the mainstream political parties, there is nothing here, there's no visionary agenda on sustainability that is worth voting for. That will send a frisson of fear through the system now. Why? Because there is one year uh, before the general election takes place. And all the party machines are already saying to different groups, uh, get on side with us if you want to work with us when we form the next government. Or, for God's sake, don't be critical of us. Stop being so negative of all these great things that we're doing. Uh, Just shut up. And this is, you know, party headquarters ringing up uh, local uh, climate or energy campaign groups or co-ops and trying to hush them up or the cabinet office ringing um, consul, chosen consultees telling them to keep quiet if they want to be kept within the loop this isn't a sense of security coming out of parliament it's a measure of parliament's insecurity so the first thing I think that so the transition movement has to do is to really enhance that feeling of insecurity of Parliament. Because that is what will drive them, drag them, to come out of their little mouse holes uh, to be bolder than, than they are. The yeah. second Sorry, thing that I would just add on that is that I've described it so far as a sort of choice or a challenge to the transition movement. The other side of this coin is more ominous, and that is the transition movement has to see that in the latest announcement that has come out of the EU's competition directorate, there is the proposal that all feed-in tariffs should cease after 2017 and be replaced by auctions. Now, this has been scripted the EU by the big energy companies and it's scripted in a way that understands that communities localized energy movements transformation movements just aren't going to be able to deal with auctions you've got to be too big you've got to have a, a sufficiently robust bank balance already in the millions to be able to guarantee your ability to fulfill a bid and you need to have risk insurance about uh, delivering it that will just price all the transformation movements out of the game it will hand control back to the big guys who loathe the decentralization of energy generation storage and transmission because it breaks up their empire. So they, this is the this EU proposed directive is the first sign of the empire strikes back. If unchecked, it would almost single-handedly pull the rug from under 
the transformation movement because we wouldn't have the tools to be able to deliver that change. My, my argument about what we have to argue for in its place is that there are three elements of core demands that now have to be made. First, that this levy control framework, we demand from all of the political parties a commitment to scrap the levy control framework and return it to the original framework that it was set in in the 2008 Act. The second thing is we have to say that transition movements, local energy uh, local energy systems have to be able to buy back their own energy first at prices closer to wholesale prices than retail. Uh, and the third element is that those localities ought to have the same rights as citizens' movements in Germany, which would be would involve the re socialization of local grids themselves and in some cases that will involve socializing the ownership in other cases it just means socializing the franchise given to the district operator but a, a franchise determined by localities around an agenda that is premised on consuming less energy saving more and generating an increasing slice of this from renewable rather than non-renewable sources. If we don't do that as movements, we'll find ourselves painted into such a small corner that we'll barely be able to exist. The tragedy is that so will the planet. You've you've written that tomorrow's security and sustainability will be built from within the strength of our inter interdependency. What does it look like when politics actually supports that? Well, I think we have to wake politics up to what's happening elsewhere. And I've done a lot of work in Germany where the citizens' movements, their energy vendor programme, is a real transformation model for us to, if not replicate in its entirety, certainly to draw from. So that to begin with, we have our big six and we have a sort of regional, a cartel of regional monopolies for distribution. In Germany, they've got about 1,100 energy suppliers, supply companies. They've got um, about most citizens, most localities have a choice of any one of, say, 70. They've also got around 160 localities, town, cities, that have voted, had citizens' votes, to take their grid back into social ownership. And I think about seven or eight of them are citizens' cooperatives. And so wherever people are being given a choice, they voted, they're voting to take the system away from the big energy utilities and take ownership of delivering large chunks of their own 
energy security on that collective basis. And it's, it's been really fascinating for me to go around Germany and talk with people in different communities because they all talk about two things. One, how they regard the big utilities, the German Big Four, with absolute disdain, the, you know, a, a disinterest in anything other than old, old economics, big style cartels, and an, an energy platform based on everything that is non-renewable. And this isn't ethically where German society has gone to. And given the choice, people have voted for much cleaner and leaner and more interdependent systems. Actually, people are becoming quite excited about interdependency, about sharing and storing, and it's unleashing a tidal wave of innovation and investment in Germany in that whole question about local balancing of systems. Mm. So I think you know, Hamburg voted to take the grid back into social ownership. Berlin overwhelmingly voted for it, but they failed to, by about, I think it was about 50,000 or 80,000, to cross the trigger point for the level of the turnout. And when I talked to the citizens energy movement there, they said, we'll be back, we'll be back. We were stitched up by the then mayor of Berlin, who was far too close to the big energy companies. Uh, but we'll be back and we'll get the numbers out next time. Mm. Now, when I look around the place here, I just think, you know, with, with the same, presented with the same choices, everywhere that I go around the country, and I'm talking about the need for big picture, bold transformations, what I encounter is huge social uh, endorsement to this, a desire to get out of the trap of feeling that we can't do anything other than be passive consumers and pay up with whatever demands the energy companies come up with, uh, and to shift into a position where we become part of the solutions to today's problems rather than the people who just have to pay the bills for them. Now, that means setting out our own radically different agenda of demands. And it's not for one moment based on the sort of choices that our political leaders are currently offering us. You know, people who talk about swapping and the ability of individual customers, households, to be able to make different choices and save money. And this is, this is absolutely ludicrous. I know that I've offended uh, most of the political parties by saying that if we're being faced with a choice between Fred West, Rose West and the Wild West, we're all in the wrong game. We have to demand a different set of choices and a different set of ground rules and assumptions about what tomorrow's energy systems are, are going to be like. And actually, if we had the courage, we, we could do far worse than just asking our own kids about the starting point. Because my guess is that um, older people may have no difficulty in 
owning up to the fact that at one stage they they owned a Commodore 64. Um, and that was where they started with the communications revolution. Mm. But if you came back to them now and said, look, I've got this fantastic plan to do a huge investment upgrade in the Commodore 64, we can put go-fast stripes on it, we can have Commodore 64s in every school in the country, in every house in the land, it would be our kids who'd turn around and say, uh, start off, I'll have an iPad, thank you very much. <laughs> and the game has changed. And what was a legitimate starting point for yesterday is not even a credible one for today. And it's, you know, it's, it would just be open to ridicule for tomorrow. So when I've taken people around Germany, they consistently ask me questions about the UK. And I suppose the most consistent one is to say, why do your political parties all begin from an assumption that you have to work out your future security in partnership with the energy companies? Because in Germany, we just see them as people who, have, who are intellectually locked into the idea of selling more consumption. If you want tomorrow's partners, they are much more uh, enthusiastically and constructively to be found in the telecommunications system sector, uh, where that notion of moving from smart phones to smart homes and from smart homes to smart towns, from smart towns to smart cities, all of which have much more localised senses of how we balance and how we build and how we retain and how we restore. And it's, they join systems up, they join thinking up in a way that we just, our system doesn't currently respond to. Now, that we are where we are. The, the Treasury, I think, is the, sort of the land of the undead, um, which fails to hear messages about the unaffordability or unsustainability of today's energy sources as the basis of tomorrow's energy thinking. But outside, outside, there are people that are unafraid to run with this. And once politicians start to go in pursuit of votes, I think if we decide that we're running off and not waiting, the parliamentary system will come chasing after us in exactly the same ways that, that it went chasing after the municipal gas, water, and electricity companies in the 19th century. Um, I think they'll catch up in less than the 50 years that it took then. I, my guess is that it, they'll catch up, because they have to catch up within a decade. Uh, my last question was, within Parliament there are... Um, beep, beep. Oops, excuse me. There are lots of people... Uh, you know, there are the people who we need to get on side and who, who, who we need to be working on this how can transition initiatives best support people who are in parliament how can we best 
empower and give permission to the people in there to do what needs to be done? Um, I, I would say that the transition movement will be blessed or cursed with um, a cross-section of all shades of parliamentary opinion in the current parliament. What it can do is act as the educator of those uh, MPs uh, to, to make them aware of the better choices that citizens in other parts of Europe or the USA already have and the shallowness of what each of the party machines is trying to sell to the public as progressive energy policies now. All three parties are running on rubbish. And the, the danger is not just that this won't work and economically it's going to be a catastrophe, but in terms of energy security and in terms of environmental security, they're just, both of them are disastrous trajectories. So I think that transition movements have a much stronger purchase on, on, on political thinking than it, rea it realises. Because every MP will be looking for votes of people who live in the transition towns. They have to get elected from those transition towns. And if the transition towns movement is starting to say, look, you, you are driving us out of existence. You are running the energy policy in order to saddle us with the same bloody cartel that has made such a mess of UK energy policy and environmental, the prospect of meeting uh, climate targets, that you've got to change your manifesto of promises if it's going to be worth us voting for you. And as, as an election approaches, MPs suddenly discover um, a much stronger interest in identifying with where their local electorate is in order to obtain and secure votes that will keep them in their jobs. Now, I'm not saying this is entirely cynical, but I'm saying that after, after the election, all of those opportunities will close for at least two or three years. And the danger for the transition movement is that if we wait until then, we may find that the doors for us are closed too. So we have to become much more assertive in running with an agenda of demands that says to all of the political parties, unless you can sign up to standing for A, B and C and fighting with us to get these commitments into your manifestos now, do not expect us to vote for you. Do not expect us to campaign for you. Do not expect us to say that you are worth anyone voting for. And 
is a moment in which politicians are vulnerable to that notion that they might, they just might not be worth voting for. They'll move heaven and earth to try and convince us that they are. And what's your sense of what those lines in the sand, those do these things or you don't get our support should be? Could you, what's up, two, what's up, two or three of those things that would for you be the absolute, you must do this? I'd, I'd say absolutely. They have to commit to um, demanding of their party that they reject and act actively oppose the proposals from the EU competition directorate to make feed-in tariffs illegal and to replace them with auctions. That is an absolute given. Equally, they should be, or we should be, demanding that the levy control framework is scrapped and the whole feed-in tariffs are put within either the capacity payments mechanism or they're dealt with in the way that the Germans do the self-financing parts of the energy um, sector accounts. But the, the levy control framework is going to bust apart in, in the next parliament anyway. At the moment, it's just being used as a mechanism to constrain the potential of the transition towns movement rather than, than to support it. So make that as a demand. And the right to produce, uh, to, to be the first users of our own energy um, is, is really critical. Partly, part of the reason for that is that at the moment, a huge, the, the, the bulk of the uh, community energy movement is really um, a movement of investors in community energy. Um, and we've been very poor at including those who are too poor to buy their way in as beneficiaries. But if you can sell energy back, electricity back, at something much closer to wholesale prices, effectively cutting people's electricity charges in half, all of a sudden, the huge value of that, and not going into high voltage distribution, and staying within the local um, 11 kilovolt distribution network, all of that, makes everyone within the locality a direct beneficiary. What Germany found is that as soon as you have a mass movement in, in the, the society that are beneficiaries of a radical change, then you have an unstoppable movement. And I think the final part of that is this notion that if you localise our thinking again about grids, distribution grids, we can really begin to sell non-consumption, energy saving, energy efficiency in ways that are 10 times more uh, exciting and coherent than anything you would ever find in Green Deal or, or anything like it. Mm. And it's and it turns, it turns 
communities, not just from being consumers to prosumers, but it turns people into the drivers of solutions. And I think that's, that's something that it's hard for me to quantify. But when, I, when I've gone around everywhere in Germany, that's the thing that strikes me. At virtually every level, uh, at which there's discussion about, about energy, the communities see themselves as being in the driving seat and not the passenger seat of sustainable change. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Brilliant. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm delighted. I'm delighted we, um, we got there. That's brilliant.